0: Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to Solar Punk. In this podcast,
1: we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Solarpunk. We're super excited to have today on the show with us, Jeff Lewis. Jeff is the founder and managing partner of Bedrock, a technology investment firm launched in 2018, currently managing approximately $1 billion. He serves or has served on the board of directors for companies, including Lyft, Nubank, Vercel, and WorkRise. He has additionally led early investments in companies like Wish, Canva, Rippling, ClearBank, Flux Safety, Teoray, and several others now value at north of $1 billion across sectors and geographies. The New York Times has named Jeff as one of the top 100 venture capitalists in the world. Bedrock is credited with coining the phrase narrative violations to describe the most compelling technology investment opportunities. Prior to founding Bedrock, Jeff served as a partner at Founders Fund for several years and began his career as a technology entrepreneur back in 2009. Now, onto the show.
2: Hello, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Lucas.
0: Awesome. Well, so Jeff, we thought that we would start off talking a little bit about the markets, given everything that has been happening over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you shared a, a few thoughts on your tweets and, or, and uh, on temp checks. Um, so we thought that we, we would ask you, you know, today's markets are sup- super tumultuous. Um, what are you telling your founders in specifically, you know, companies like Epera's or Andreal uh, and others that you're working with? What, what is the advice you're giving them?
2: Well, the, the advice was really delivered in, in sort of Q3 of 2021 or, or Q4 of 2021. So we're not really delivering much advice now. Our advice back then in the back half of 2021 was that uh, the markets were going to crash. And so we were, you know, sort of June, July, August, September, October, November, December of 2021, ringing the alarm uh, with, with companies and uh, encouraging our entrepreneurs to the extent, you know, they had a need for more capital over the next, you know, three, four, five years, encouraging all of our entrepreneurs to raise, uh, you know, as much capital as they could as quickly as they could. And quite honestly, uh, we traded off several internal initiatives, things that we wanted to do for our firm bedrock in sort of Q3 and Q4 to focus really almost all of our energy on working with, uh, you know, a handful of our entrepreneurs where we are extremely bullish long-term. So companies like Flock Safety uh, which is a public safety operating system. It's you know they have a series of hardware products. they monetize through SaaS subscription. Companies like Epiris and others are really encouraging them, hey, go out to the markets, raise more capital. We'd love to invest more capital in the business as well because we're we're very bullish over the long term. And that was sort of the advice. I'd say at this point in time, we actually feel quite good about the entrep- set of entrepreneurs and companies we work with. They you know the, the bulk of them have, Many, many, many years of runway uh, because a lot of them execute on fundraises not only in Q three, Q four, but also in Q one of this year. So we feel actually very good. Those that you know have a runway issue, we're giving the standard advice. I mean, we're not we don't have any sort of radically unique uh, insight. It's it's basically a situation where uh, the bid ask spread in the private markets uh, is going to remain. Uh, you know, fat entrepreneurs want a valuation that is going to be higher than uh, venture capital investors are going to be willing to pay for some time. And so there's just going to be this, you know, multi-month or multi-quarter uh, period where these prices are going to have to get sorted out. Um, I'd say the appetite, you know, the, the the upside for companies like like Epres, like Anduril, um, like Flock Safety, like R0, which is another sort of hardware uh, company focused on. Uh, UV uh, disinfection and decontamination where we're investors and and really bullish there as well. But the upshot for these companies sort of building uh, against these really big long time horizon problems where they're sort of more capital intensive is I do think that um, more often than not, they're sort of less correlated to the public markets. And so I'd say um, one area that's quite good to be in right now as an entrepreneur, uh, is doing anything where there's not a direct public market comp. And so if you think about Anduril, about AppRest, you know, you can sort of comp them to the, the primes in the public markets. Those are doing quite well, but they're they're not really like the primes. They're very different. They have lots of proprietary technology. If you think about flock safety, you know, there, there's not really a comp for what they're doing, a technology that solves crime. There, there's just not a, a comp for it. And, uh, and so we like, uh, we, we think if you're an entrepreneur starting something new today, uh, you should think about what areas don't have public market comps. That's kind of a, a good area where I think there is going to be appetite uh, from investors to deploy capital into those types of businesses.
1: I think that's uh, one amazing that you guys were able to give that advice early on the potentially tumultuous markets. And it sounds great that a lot of these companies have been able to kind of shore up their coffers and be prepared. What did you see in the markets that gave you the sense of, hey, we need to sound the alarm bells? And why do you think so many other people missed that? What what was the unique insight that you had?
2: The the, the, the unique insight I, I'd say was, was 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 well. There's always a macro and micro story. So you know the, the macro story I don't I don't think was particularly unique. You can't print that much money uh, in in such a short period of time uh, without 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 ultimately um, having to sort of radically re-engineer the economy and, and raise interest rates at some point, which which obviously hits taps. So That's sort of the macro insight. You know, I've been sort of I had this line, uh, nihilistic valuations that I was sort of using since uh, since since 2020. Um, so sort of been sounding the alarm for some time. It was a few years early. and, and we internally um, got some things right through COVID, got some things wrong. I mean, our intuition is we should do very little. Uh, we you know, generally followed that, but we, we probably didn't even invest a little more than we should have retrospectively through those two years. Um, that said, the micro insight was was really just looking at, you know, we, we look at lots of companies. Um, I think we're much more focused than many firms. Uh, we're only looking at a few companies at any given time, but we still are looking at 150, 200 plus companies a year that we're sort of meeting with the entrepreneurs and talking with them. And basically everything was getting funded um, and every everything was getting funded at valuations that we couldn't underwrite. And I felt like people were just on this autopilot capital deployment cycle on the VCs under sort of this autopilot momentum driven thing where people weren't actually thinking about the specific businesses, the specific entrepreneurs. No one was thinking about the specifics uh, and everyone sort of just focused on the general uh, momentum in the market. And, and that was sort of the, 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 you know, felt like it was just getting extremely crazy by the summer of last year.
0: And Jeff, I, I, I love this idea of financial nihilism that I think you and I have talked about. And I give you total credit for. Well, really it's not that good. It's, it's not a
2: healthy <laughs> idea. So I don't think. You no, right, right.
0: It, but. but well, I, I love how it just captures the essence of so much of the underlying psychology that we were experiencing back then. You know, you talked uh, a couple of weeks ago how we had a, you know a bear, a bull market on get-rich-quick uh, financial schemes and a bear market on generational assets. And I'd be curious if you could comment on what what you think was driving this underlying psychology happening with, with this idea of financial nihilism and, you know, just throwing money at things, just pretend like without doing the work and, and everything that was happening. Like, what, what, what do you think was driving that? And how how, did, how do you think that we got there?
2: Well, I think that there was this sort of one time psychosocial uh, shock uh, societally when the, when the pandemic hit. Uh, where people suddenly felt, uh, you know, far more mortal than they'd ever felt before. And, you know, while it turned out that actually the pandemic uh, is not very deadly, unless you're in very specific demographics, I think there was this sort of radical change uh, psychosocially where people sort of reckoned with the fact they could die. Um, the cities started sort of, you know, they, they, most of the major cities really decayed uh, in those early stages of, of COVID as everything got shut down and, and folks that had the, the resources left these cities for, you know, periods of time. And I think it sort of just changed people's, you know, there's a sense in which we sort of society creates a matrix for us. You sort of live in this matrix. And then when that sort of radically pulled away in a short period of time, you can sort of see that actually there is no room full of smart guys, girls, trans people in, in skinny ties, or whatever they're wearing in a room that knows all the answers. Uh, everyone's kind of just, uh, you know, figuring it out for themselves. There is no grand system that keeps everything, you know, working that that there's a sense which makes people feel a lot more mortal. And I think that manifested itself in a wide range of ways. And, and, and one of those ways was um, this sort of... Um, you know, orientation towards just what are the ways that I can uh, make a lot of money quickly and have a lot of fun. And so, you know, there, 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 there's sort of like this sense in which um, a lot of the web energy in Web3, which I quite honestly, I am long term, quite bullish on the decentralized world and, you know, been invested. We at Bedrock have been invested. I'm in things like Bitcoin and Ethereum for many, many years at this point. Uh, and are bullish over the long term and other Web3 projects. But there's a sense in which so many of these had a get-rich-quick scheme uh, and uh, continue to feel feel to them. Um, and when you sort of unpack the white papers uh, and actually dig in, uh, there's no there there. And, you know, the sort of, sort of two memories really uh, stand out for me on on this sort of... So I would say the financial nihilism was across everything it was in the public markets it was in the private markets uh, it was probably most pronounced in sort of crypto web3 through 20 you know 2020 2021 and you know the sort of two memories would be one i remember meeting with a sort of leading entrepreneur in that sector sort of one of the most successful folks in, in crypto and um, they were telling me about how you know they have to have two iv drips a day us uh, so they're getting uh, vitamin iv drips twice a day in order to be able to attend all of the different conferences and parties that they have to go to constantly. So there's sort of this like IV drip. You sort of the only way it's sustainable uh, to, to sort of keep making money in cryptos if you're getting, you know, a, a nurse comes to you twice a day and gives you a vitamin IV drip. That's that that felt deeply off. That didn't feel like a sustainable way to sort of uh, make money long term. <laughs> and then and then, uh, and then too, um, almost every uh, pitch deck or every white paper. Uh, that I, you know, starting in 2017, we started reading white papers for ICOs, then the ICO thing disappeared. Uh, then there's all these pitch decks for these, you know, pre-tokenization projects. They all had spelling errors in them. And so I'd say like 90% of these things had spelling errors. And we tend to be very focused on specifics and on details. And I think there was this modality where everyone just focused on the general momentum and not the specific question of whether is this specific project actually, is there a chance for it to be durable? Is this specific company, is there a path for this to be 10, 15, 20 years from now really durable? Or is this just purely a momentum psychosocial type dynamic? And I think that was sort of the the way in which the sort of shock to the system, way in which people felt suddenly very mortal, saw the matrix pulled away, trickled down into these financial markets. <laughs>
1: Amazing overview of kind of looking backwards. So, if you bring it to today, though, right, there are all these founders who are still interested in building companies who haven't previously raised. They want to start now, they have an idea, they're, you know, we're still kind of in the great resignation. What advice do you have for somebody who's starting a company today in this down market? How should they be thinking about whether or not it's a good time to do that? How to fundraise, whether to fundraise a large round, a small round? Is there, are there still VCs out there? How, what advice would you give to somebody?
2: Well, we're, we're certainly still out there and, and actively investing. I know there are several other firms that are, but so definitely still VCs out there. There's definitely still a lot of demand to invest in early stage technology. That's not going away. So I, I do I do think it's always a good time to start a company. That said, I want to be crystal clear. but something that has really changed is you should only be starting a company. You should only be becoming an entrepreneur uh, if the thing that you are building is your life's work, because it is going to be so hard. We are we are in such choppy waters geopolitically in the financial markets, um, sort of societally. It is going to be so hard over the next five, 10 years to get these things to work, that unless it's your life's work, I, I don't think you should be starting a company. And we exited a phase, and just to quickly revert back to looking backwards, like a decade long phase where becoming a founder was, you know, founder sort of like the new, being an banker or something. So this very sexy, aspirational thing to do. You had a lot of people doing it for social signaling reasons. And I would advise folks today, you should only be starting a company if the company you're starting is your life's work. Uh, and, that, and we will only be investing. We at Bedrock, we are only investing in entrepreneurs. Where the businesses are their life's work, full stop. That's all we're doing going forward.
0: And Jeff, may, maybe that, that, that's a good point to bring in uh, the article that that and in the investment that you've made a couple of weeks ago on Rippling. And the name of the article was uh, Rippling is Built Different. Um, and you go on to talk about how Parker, Parker Conrad is a different type of entrepreneur, and it, it also reminded me of Palmer Lucky from Andrew that you also invested in, uh, that also made a fantastic comeback as a founder. Yes, um, can you say a little bit more? Like, what do you identify in those individuals that you find unique?
2: Well, it's always specific to the to the entrepreneur. You know, I'd, I'd say Palmer's an amazing example of this as well. Uh, we're, we're we're basically. Um, Anderil, it's sort of this, it's sort of this combination with Rippling with Andral, where you've got an entrepreneur who's basically been forged through quite honestly being wronged. So partially been been forged through being wronged by the world, by other people. And you know, so as an investor, you have to form a view, okay, was this person actually wronged? And you know, in, in, in the instance of, 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 of Palmer, my view would be yes. And then in since the park, my view was, would be, yes, this person was wrong. This person sort of scapegoated in these sort of crazy ways. And so they're forged. They become forged through this. And then they also have a life's work mission. And, you know, in, in, in Rippling's case, it, it's truly, I think, can be a solved long term for so many of the issues we have around HR and companies that, that I think it can be sort of a Salesforce scale business. Uh, what Salesforce is for a company and its customers, Rippling can really be for a company and its employees, sort of this all-in-one incredible solution uh, with HR and IT just really streamlining and simplifying processes uh, for companies internally, which I think unlocks just a lot of uh, human flourishing, quite honestly, if you can reduce the amount of administrative work from these companies. In in, in Anderil's case, you know I remember uh, my former colleague, Trey Stevens, uh, initially I dated the company with Palmer, I think starting back in like late 2015, early 2016, they'd initially had the idea, and then they launched uh, or founded it. I think in 2017, but just around like obviously there needs to be this sort of massive (laughs) improvement in the technology that uh, the U.S. and and, and the United States allies uh, have, and they felt uniquely positioned to do that. So it's this combination of like a life's work type view for what the company can become with an entrepreneur who uh, is, 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 is motivated by that life's work, but also has this extra this extra thing that's motivating them, which is they've been forged because of, in part from hardship, they've been forged by hardship. Things have not always been easy um, and they've had to overcome something just extraordinarily difficult. And I think in the case of both those founders, Palmer, Parker, I like that they sort of have an alliteration to them, Palmer and Parker. But in the case of both of those founders, you know, people were trying to destroy them. Okay, folks were trying to destroy those people, uh, and 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 the stuff that happened to each of them would have destroyed most humans, let alone most companies. Very few founders have that. Very few entrepreneurs have
0: that. And just double clicking a little bit. You know, the, the timing of that investment, since we're talking so much about, you know, psychology and markets, the timing of that investment was also super interesting to us because it came out basically on the same week that the markets were panicking. Now, maybe the actual investment were a, f- a few weeks before. but oh,
2: no, no, no. It closed like a few days before. We, 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 it closed like <laughs> right, right before we announced it. Well, that, so, that's yeah. <laughs> fantastic.
0: So, so can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the, the investor psychology that you and the team was trying to manage? when you're making that decision for you know a late stage investment, $10 billion plus dollar plus uh, valuation in the midst of you know everything that was happening in the financial markets?
2: Well, ab- absolutely. I mean, on, on, on Rippling, uh, we wrote this piece I'd encourage folks to go read at bedrockcap.com forward slash Rippling, uh, which really outlines the deep prehistory we have with this company, and the many, many, many cycles we'd spent on the business and on Parker and on the executive team over many years, starting in 2018. And so it's sort of this situation where we'd assessed the company in depth. We'd done diligence in depth three separate times over over, four years before leading this round. We'd been invested in the company since before their Series B, since 2019. So this is a company and a founder that we'd known for just a very long time, and we'd seen the business just outperform plan month after month after month, expand their surface area in all of these incredible ways, uh, see in firsthand how Parker, how other execs on the team were growing as leaders over many years, which is why that rippling round, we're not the only ones who saw that. So they're, the lead investor of their Series A, Kleiner Perkins, co-led this rippling round with us, the Series D round. Um, other existing investors, such as Sequoia, Y Combinator, uh, doubled, uh, tripled, quadrupled down alongside us. So there were a handful of, of existings, ourselves and Kleiner being the ones who co-led the round, that saw, okay, this actually can be much bigger than anyone thinks it is. And so one of one of the ways in which, you know, you can do quite quite well as an investor uh, is if you believe something. Can, everyone knows Rippling's a great company. So you sort of pull, you know, entrepreneurs, you pull investors everyone agrees this is a great company. I don't think there's anyone who thinks it's not. Uh, the question is, who thinks it's even more great than anyone else does? And I'd say we, we are in the camp of a handful of investors who think it's even more great than anyone else out there thinks that it is. Like, I think people think, yep, yeah, this will be sort of a $40 billion company I, in 10 years. That's maybe the conventional wisdom. we think it can be like a $200 billion company in 10 to 15 years. Now, the second piece of this, of course, is you have to have a long-term hold on these things. And so we knew the market was going to crash. Uh, we wanted to lead around in Rippling. We'd already been invested, but we wanted to concentrate capital in that company. That's part of our strategy at Bedrock is concentrating capital from our funds and our top few companies round up around round and supporting those entrepreneurs as they scale. So we knew we wanted to do it. We knew the markets, the market comps were going to look insane. It We knew it was singular. And so it's not a repeatable thing. We're not going to be doing that. Five other times. This was an end of one investment. It was a once-in-a-lifetime investment. And our piece works through our thinking around why we should do it. Uh, and then we have to hold that position for a very long time. We won't be selling that. My my hair will probably be gray uh by the time we uh by the time we think about exiting that one, we're gonna be holding that for a very
1: long time. So, uh, of course, Rippling's an incredible company, software based. Many of the other companies you've mentioned uh, in our session so far uh, Eperus, Flock Safety, Android, et cetera, they're hardware based. How do you think about your affinity and bedrock's affinity for these kind of companies that have real hard assets or building something physical? Do you feel like you gravitate towards the sector? This just happens to be part of your investment criteria and looking for companies where it's somebody's life's mission that often happens to touch hardware and something physical and real?
2: It's a little bit of a misnomer to be honest. So when you think about our hardware, so and I, I, there is some credence to your point. So I'm gonna address your point in a minute or your question in a minute, but I do want to note that actually a lot of these companies that look like hardware, so take Flock safety, uh, it's actually, it's a software business. Now hardware is sort of their entry points. They're installing these cameras. They, they have now a gunshot sound detector that is, so it's a multi-product company now, but ultimately the, the value is created by the software, uh, by the computer vision, by the machine learning. People are paying for seats on a software SaaS subscription. Uh, You know, even I would think Andrew would would argue that, yeah, they're building hardware, but their value is really in their lattice operating system with a software system. And so I think these companies, where for us to do hardware, we want there to be a software centric business model. Hardware can obviously be a key component of it, but ultimately, we think the value is actually largely created, the hardware sort of necessary uh, for the go to market, you know, in order for on drill to work, they have to have lots of amazing hardware, obviously, in order for Flock to work, they have to have hardware, but ultimately a lot of the value is created uh, through software, through, you know, computations, algorithms, et cetera. Um, you know, EPRS is somewhat more on the hardware side, R0, which is our, our biosafety company that we're really excited about very much on the hardware side. And yeah, I'd say we're not sort of, you know, we don't have any sort of obsession with hardware enabled businesses, but uh, they are oftentimes, Somewhat undervalued uh, because it is just incredible. You know, I hate these sort of trite truisms, but you know, one that is just true is hardware is really hard, and so most of the hardware things fail. It's really hard, um, so you know, you can occasionally find a corner case where it's it's extremely hard, but not quite impossible, and and those ones tend to be undervalued at the early stages.
1: And, you know, when we think about your portfolio and the areas that you've focused on, um, in addition to some of them touching hardware, as we just discussed, it feels like a good number of them help keep kind of the West safe. It furthers uh, kind of democracy, uh, Western values and so on. If you were to take a step back and think about where our country is today. What are you most worried about? What's keeping you up at night? And uh, kind of the second order of that is like, what are the opportunities that you think uh, are there for startups or technology companies to solve?
2: Man, well, well we got a lot of problems. Um, so you know, I, I sort of have a um, I sort of have an outsider insider view on this because uh, you know I'm, I'm an immigrant to the United States. Uh, I, I grew up in Canada. Um, and so I sort of have an outsider, insider perspective. And I think there's a sort of crisis of meaning writ large. And, you know, there are all of these different causes, I think sort of hollowing out of the middle class has caused, you know, communities to lose cohesion. Um, I think that there's been a loss of religiosity in sort of the traditional religions that folks historically have believed in in the U.S. And so you have people looking in all of these new directions uh, for meaning, for purpose, for belonging. Um, one of those is something like Bitcoin. You know, another of those is something like AGI. Another is something like, like transhumanism. Uh, another is politics. Quite honestly, and I think actually politics has probably replaced religion um, as the sort of dominant, you know, community belonging forming force now in the United States. And that I think is extremely dangerous. Uh, You know, the whole purpose of politics is things should just work and operate and the society should be functioning and you shouldn't have people constantly obsessing over over politics in society. That doesn't feel very healthy to me. And so uh, I feel like the sort of, I could point like every investor is like, these are huge problems. We need founders and entrepreneurs building companies to solve problem A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And like, I could point to 10 of these, but I think the even bigger problem to solve is this crisis of meaning of belonging. And you actually can solve that as an entrepreneur through building a business where your life's work is like, can imbue people with purpose, can imbue people with meaning, can imbue the team that works with you with meaning and purpose, and hopefully make society more vibrant. And so I do think entrepreneurship is a means to solve this crisis of meaning that I think is the biggest problem in Western society. Now, I think it's there's another version of this in Europe where I where I think it's maybe even worse there. I won't even get into that today, but I, I think it's bad. I think it's bad across the Western world right now, and I, I don't see an easy path. You know, there, there's obviously all the geopolitical stuff. You know, I sort of oscillate on China and whether we're sort of too worried about it or not worried enough about political things. I think the crisis of meaning uh, is, is sort of a root, root cause issue. Uh, and I trace it back to the loss of religiosity, to be honest with you, in the West.
0: In- Jeff maybe to unpack that a little bit you know when we uh, when we chatted with a few other guests on the show i think both Catherine Boyle and Mike Maples pointed to this uh, website wtf uh, wtf happened in se- uh, 1971 which basically talks about all the expansive monetary policy Bretton woods and, and and all those kind of things that happened um I- i'd be curious if you could unpack a little bit more in your perspective where this crisis of meaning comes from you mentioned religion And, you know, what, what are other aspects that are driving this and what do you think is our way out of this? You know, I think for entrepreneurs, there's a lot that they can do to both bring meaning to the world, but also self-actualize, uh, through building their companies. Um, what, what can other people be doing, uh, to, to, to help get us out of this problem?
2: Well, you need people to be, um, peeling off from the legacy institutions and, uh, trying to build new organizations, they don't have to all be companies. So you you, you need you need people to be to be to be doing that uh, to a much greater degree than they have been. And I, I do think it, I do think it's starting to happen, but it's sort of going to be this slow, long, arduous process. I increasingly believe that actually the crisis of meaning is so. You know, I, I don't want to repeat what other guests have said on the root causes. You know, we we could talk about that. What the fuck happened in 1971 or two piece? I've, I've read it. I, I know what it says. I generally agree that something something happened there. Um, but I have a few quibbles with that, with that one. But generally, think it's right. I think actually things are so screwed up that you might need some sort of insane uh, macro shock to actually uh, solve it, um, and, or not solve it, but give people the motivation to solve it. And I'm, I'm very scared about the fact that I, I feel we might actually be at that point. And so I think it's sort of, well, what can you just do in your life day to day? And I think it's like build community, <laughs> you know, have a, have a family, have a community, work at a place where you really resonate with the people and the culture, try to have a mission driven company, sort these very basic things, or if you're sort of interested in saying in the nonprofit arena, like try and start new things. So I, I, I'd say like one maybe more actionable piece is, uh, typically the larger the, the organization you're a part of is, uh, the harder it is to find meaning in it. And so, you know, I started my career working at a company that I think had a hundred thousand employees, Procter & Gamble, back when I was like a college intern and right out of college for like a you know little a few little, little while. So it's sort of a weird trajectory into tech and really hard to find meaning in such a big organization. Uh, And then I've just successively been part of smaller and smaller and smaller teams and feel like my life has gotten more and more and more meaningful as I sort of am part of smaller teams. And, you know, Bedrock, we have a team of 10 people now, myself included. That feels like a really good-sized team to find sort of meaning in the work that you're doing. And so, yeah, it's a a, a hard problem. I worry we might uh, be in for some sort of, you know, I'd say that, you know, on a, on a personal level, being anchored, anchored in beliefs and sort of uh, believing in things that are much older than I am, that have been around for centuries, uh, as, as sort of as beliefs about things is, has, has get helped me to find meaning in the world. I think more people should look to things that aren't uh, on Twitter, but are sort of far more ancient as a place to, to anchor oneself for meaning.
0: Jeff, so you, you mentioned that, you know, in some, in some ways, you believe that we need to have a, a hard pivot from a lot of what's going on today. Some of the perhaps most contrarian ideas that I've seen Bedrock Fund is new cities. I think you recently had an investment in Praxis, and I think you've made a few others as well, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the, the, I think the criticisms that one may have is, hey... We shouldn't be funding, you know, new cities like that is escapist in some ways. Like we should be funding technologies that's going to actually help the West defend itself against uh, the CCP and all these things. What is the sort of like bouquets from, you know, uh, anti-nihilism or you know, geopolitical perspective of why we actually need uh, companies slash cities uh, like Praxis and a few others?
2: Well, look, you know, there's uh, uh, really one of the most Probably the most brilliant person that I know on the planet recommended a book to me um, called Exit Voice and Loyalty, uh, which I'd I'd urge people to read. And in the context of being part of a society, uh, you can sort of, uh, you know, try and use your voice to change things. And, you know, one can do that here. Not everyone has the equal, equal ability to amplify their voice and get their voice heard. And so there is this. You know, it, when voice doesn't work, um, you sort of one has a right to consider alternative options, such as such as exit and trying to trying to do something totally new. And you know, there are these projects like Praxis where we'll, we'll see it's a super long time horizon project. You know, the community they've built is second to none. Really impressive group of young folks, cro- interdisciplinary. Everyone from philosophers to poets, to technologists. It sort of spans a a broad range of of, of extremely talented young people. So they're working to build a new city um, outside of the United States that would be its own sovereign uh, or semi-sovereign state. Um, Honduras Prospera is is another new cities project we founded. I'm working on building a uh, charter city on the island of Roatan uh, off the coast of Honduras. Uh, it is an area where we're going to continue to be looking uh, you know, it's, so, so look, so it, it's about, it's about there needs to be paths for people to exit. Hopefully we can fix these wonderful, extraordinary Western societies that are, that are quite broken right now. Hopefully we can fix them. Uh, if we can't, some, some folks would like some other options to go exit too.
1: And beyond, you know, when we think about all of these options and issues with the world and and so on, how do you think about uh, the balance of what can be solved with technology and startups versus what is effectively general sentiment and politics and just the way the world is going? And I think an investment like Proxy, for example, is somewhere in between on those two. But what's your take on how much technology can really solve here and how critical it is in our future?
2: I think it's the only thing that can solve it. Um, so, I, so I actually think that the, the, only, the, the, the future belongs to, to technologists, technologists, entrepreneurs building breakthrough technologies. I mean, you see it with with Elon. Uh, you can love or hate him. You can love or hate uh, Jeff uh, B from Amazon. You can you can love or hate, um, uh, you know, th- th- these folks. But 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 the future belongs to the next generation of people like that. Uh, and it, it's sort of the only path uh, to to fix things. So I uh, I think it is it is the the singular way.
0: If we're thinking about this drawdown drawdown in the markets and you know venture investors becoming uh, more and more bearish uh, in all the market sentiment that's happening today, what do you think this means for funding uh, and, and for fundraising for a lot of the companies that you've backed? that are in, you know, this, these more capital intensive uh, sectors. Uh, do you think the reaction there is going to be different than, you know, to to a lot of other entrepreneurs?
2: Um, you know, I'd say like less than 15% of the capital we've deployed across all of our funds is in what we cl- classify as capital intensive businesses. So we're not hyper exposed to it. Those businesses typically have a tremendous amount of runway and are going after solving huge problems like defense technology stuff, Flock safety, R zero. Those are really the only capital intensive businesses in the portfolio, and I and I think they're going to be just fine. Now that said, um, I think you know the the I don't. It's not like fundraising is going to stop and no one's going to be investing in these things. It's just going to be prices are going to come down. It's going to be a lot harder, and uh, you you've got to really have the goods. And so yeah, get, it's it's like focusing on getting your own house in order as an entrepreneur. Focusing on orientation toward durability internally uh, at the expense of like momentum or perception of momentum externally is the right trade to be making right now in the next few quarters.
0: And then, um, you know, also speaking of markets, there's been a lot of talks over the last uh, few months about ESG. And just last week, I think we saw the SEC scrutinizing a lot of ESG investments. You did a temp check a uh, couple, maybe a couple months ago about, you know, how ESG relates to defense companies. Um, I'm curious if you could expand your views on that uh, and how you feel about the, this whole brother category.
2: Well, I, I think I might have actually started the the sort of trend on ESG with a temp check that I think I was in January or February. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited that lots of uh, leaders picked up on that and have been talking about it, which is great. I mean, it's it's effectively a way to cancel companies. It's a mentality of uh, looking at a business through sort of a overly simplistic, unforgiving lens, trying to make it conform to sort of a certain predetermined agenda. It's kind of oppositional to truth seeking, um, which is what we try and do in the world here at Bedrock. And so I think there are these areas of defense technology where it's sort of clearly a gaping hole and in ESG. Like, obviously you can't have an environment you can't have a society. You can't really have governance unless you, unless you have defense. Unless you're able to keep your society safe. And so, I think it's I, I'm innately very worried about any uh, sort of credential, which, like an ESG scorecard is a credential, where they sort of have the power to determine whether something's good or not. Um, that that's that's quite quite dangerous. And I think a lot of the things that are actually that we at Bedrock believe are good, such as breakthroughs in defense technology to keep Western civilization safer, uh, the fact that these things aren't part of the SG framework seems to be quite quite deeply off. Uh,
0: so just a quick follow-up on what you said, uh, like you mentioned the credentialism part. Uh, you know, I think just uh, last week, you were talking about how credentialism uh, a, a credentialism, and how it relates to venture investing and how, you know, the asset category sounds a lot about, uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities, even when with management consulting uh, about a decade ago. Uh, I was curious if, if you could talk a little bit more about that and kind of what you see in the market and if you think that this will continue if we enter kind of a prolonged uh, downturn.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, whenever you have a huge inflow of capital into an asset class you've had with venture over the last you know 10 plus years, the, the, in order to scale up AUM highly dramatically, you sort of, as a, as a firm, you have to hire lots and lots of people. And so, definitionally, your bar is just going to get lowered for the people that you're going to hire if you're trying to manage 20, 30, 40 billion dollars and deploy all of that in one year into technology companies. And so, it's become, I think, a trap. Uh, I think founding companies became a trap. I think becoming a associate or an analyst at a at an investment firm, investing in private technology, sort of became a trap. And uh, there's sort of been this uh, institutionalization of, of venture, and and um, and I actually think that uh, that uh, the, the, the 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 change in the market dynamics is going to cut quite strongly against that. And I think that it is very much back to basics. And to me, back to basics is small, tight-knit teams where the people work really closely together. It's not a deal machine. It's not a deal factory. It's not a markup machine. It's not a feeder fund for a crossover fund where you're relying on a crossover fund to markup your companies. Uh, It's not an incubation factory. It is Small teams of investors really getting to know small handfuls of entrepreneurs, really understanding what they're they're building, how it will impact society, why it can be life's work for a large swath of people as it scales, and making fewer high conviction investments. That's what venture was back in the day. I think that's what it's going to be again, and I can't wait.
1: It seems like the theme of what we're almost going on here is back, truly back to the basics, right? So yes, on the venture side, I think we as a firm at Village Global 100% agree with your mentality at Bedrock, but I think the tr- same is true from what you described with founders as well let's stop with these massive valuations for no reason. Let's stop taking in all this money from these crossover funds, et cetera. And let's just build and build something people want. And there's a reason for it, et cetera. So I think that theme is on 100% on point. Question for you, can we extrapolate that out to the country and the world, almost getting back to the basics and getting back to our roots? And if we think about how we solve the financial crisis that we may be entering into or are already in, where we solve conflict around the world, all of these disputes going on, how do we fix that? And if we uh, you know, close our eyes for a second and say, Jeff, you are now president of the United States or whatever country you think has that position of power, what would you be doing to get us back to the basics and to writing all of this?
2: I can never be president. I was born in Canada, so that's off the table for
1: me. President but of I, Canada, I, I, then <laughs> prime, minister prime, prime minister of Canada. Prime not minister moved, of Canada. Definitely
2: not, moving, definitely not moving back to Canada ever. So, uh, but in, in any case, um, you know, look, I'd say um, yes. This back to basics is actually uh, the right the right approach. I, I, I in your life, uh, societally, it's back to basics. I don't actually think the president uh, of, of the United States, the prime minister of Canada uh, can really solve the problems. So I, I actually do think it's, be, you know, there's a, maybe being the mayor of, San, if you're the mayor of San Francisco, or if you're the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, or you're the mayor of, uh, I think you have more of an ability to solve problems. Um, or if you're on city council, you know, a friend of mine here in Austin, Texas, is running for for city council. that. I think on sort of a civic level, you can actually. So, if we're talking back to basics, you have to break things down into the smallest units you can. And so, I think actually these things can get the day-to-day issues, the day-to-day problems. There's much more of an ability to solve these things on a sort of municipal, civic level. You know, you can join a school board. Uh, you can you can uh, b- volunteer at your synagogue or church or mosque or something like. There's all of these ways in which. I think all those layers of ha- of trying to have impact. There's a way in which you actually have a deeper impact than being the president, uh, because you're you're actually able to really change lives for people in a in a much deeper way. You're not going to reach as many people, but you can actually do a lot more.
0: So, so just thinking about you know, just you uh, in your life, given all these challenges that we talked about here today, what keeps you optimistic in the midst of all this?
2: Uh, well, what keeps me optimistic uh, is. We are uh, we we are really blessed at Bedrock in that we're in a position where we get to spend our time um, investing our capital our sweat equity in entrepreneurs trying to solve problems trying to build things that will improve society and so we are you know actually in a very lucky position we get to actually try in our own small way to do something about this on sort of a day-to-day basis. And so the fact that we have agency over that is is what keeps me optimistic for us.
0: Appreciate uh, the the unique insights.
2: Thank you so much.
1: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.